Life can take us on unexpected paths that leave us with emotional wounds and scars. But these scars do not have to be a burden that we carry alone. I'm Jocelyn Biederset, a childhood sexual assault survivor, and this is Invisible Scars, a podcast where we connect and learn from those who have come out stronger on the other side of trauma. So today I'm so honored to be sitting down with Toonie Dagnan to discuss her deeply personal memoir, Underwater Daughter. Toonie's story of childhood trauma with a sexually abusive father and a mother who seemed helpless to stop him is also filled with so much hope, forgiveness, and self-love. Before we get into this episode, please take into consideration that this episode discusses childhood sexual abuse and may be extremely triggering for some listeners. One of the things that drew me to this interview so much, a few things, your background as a dancer, first of all, and I, my daughter is a competitive dancer. So I'm like instantly like, tell me more. I want to know all about this. How can I support her? And also, you know, your story, I can relate to so much, um, just as a, a survivor of sexual abuse as well. And the fact that you actually put it into print, you know, writing a book is something that I've thought about and telling my story in a book is something I have thought about since I was a little girl. And I can't imagine just like how freeing it must feel for you to be able to share this. Okay. Which one do you want me to attack first? (laughs) Both. But start from the dancer. Start from there. So it's funny. How old is your daughter? She's 10. She's 10. And she's been dancing for how long? since she was three, but competitively, this is her third year. Okay. So, you know, when I was her age, so I started dancing like four years old, five years old, and there was not, there really wasn't such a thing as competitive dance then. Right. So you were either going to be a professional ballet dancer or some other, you know, modern dancer, but basically you were in a dance company. Mm -hmm. MTV kind of arrived as I was starting my career. So then that kind of thing sort of came on the horizon. But now everything is competition and it's intense. It really ramps up the intensity for the student, I'd say like a hundredfold or more. Um, And I didn't have to constantly be thrown into that sort of judging atmosphere. So that's really, really hard, especially for a young person. And then for the mom or the dad or whoever's sort of taking over that role, that mentor sort of guiding role, you don't know how far to push. You don't know how far to, inter- you know, just to, you're just trying to sense and support the passion. And hopefully that that's like the very top of the priority list. Absolutely. You know, it, it's, it's a fine line it between nurturing what she loves mm-hmm. while also trying to maintain a healthy boundary around it and body image and the pressure and, you know, how she looks at herself and that it's not her whole identity, although she feels that it is. I'm sure she does. But there are other point, like parts of you mm-hmm. that are also just as important. So mm-hmm. it's definitely um, an interesting Thing to navigate as a parent. I would, if that, you know, if that were my daughter, I had two daughters and neither one of them danced. <laughs> I, isn't that the way it goes? <laughs> but I would be such an over-communicator as far as all of the things, the, especially the body-associated things that she could um, sort of start to ingest and 
I have a challenging time separating from who she actually is, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, before we get into this, um, I cannot wait to talk about your book. I know that you're so proud of it and you should be so proud of it. And, you know, it's something I've always thought about doing as a survivor of sexual abuse as well. And I just, I'm so happy for you that you did this. But before we get into that, before every interview, um, it's really important to me for the person I'm interviewing to share something that they lean on in their everyday life to help them with their mental health and help them get through those really hard moments in life. So I would love for you to share with us something that you do. Girl, <laughs> meditate daily. 100%. Yes. hundred percent. I found meditation long ago, but was not very consistent throughout the years, you know, busy chaos, kids, all that stuff. And, but you know, in the last five, six years, I'd say for sure, maybe longer, I don't miss a day. And I, yeah. and it's, it just grounds me. It, it, um, just helps me stay in a place where I'm not overly reactive as much as possible. And I can more easily gain a more expansive global perspective of things. So that's my number one. I'd say three out of five of my kids are very serious meditators. Mm -hmm. Other two, they have their different deals and it works for them and that's great. So, yeah. Yeah. It really helps with that emotional regulation too. Mm -hmm. Just that like nervous system regulation. And, you know, as a, a trauma survivor, I know that it is so hard to calm your mind, to bring yourself back to that level of reality. And a lot of meditation is bringing it inward and really focusing on your body and what's happening. And what was something that helped you when you first started? Because I know like so many people have reached out to me and say, okay, you meditate, but like, it's hard. I can't sit still. I can't shut off my mind. And I would love to know how you started it and what got you to that level that you could do it. Yeah. I remember too, actually like post dance career and sort of segueing into other ways of moving my body. Um, one way was yoga, of course. And I remember first going to yoga and we would get to Shavasana and I'm like, mm, I'm out. <laughs> I yeah. just would hightail it out of the studio. Like that just was not what I was capable of. And I think just the more I read about it, I thought I have, I've got to teach myself how to slow down and, and stop the noise. And, you know, the, the thoughts, the thought patterns that we all have, like there's a, I was going to drop the F-bomb, but um, there's a go ahead. I do. <laughs> you know, it's our default mode network, right? Like it's in the brain and that's what we do. Our brains are, are not capable of not generating thoughts all the time. So it's in our best interest to have a better awareness. Not We're not going to stop it, but we can you know, piggyback, we can join the ride and have more say as far as how those thoughts are going to pull us in one direction or another. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what meditation will help you with. Yes. You know, there's a scene in the movie Eat, Pray, Love, where she goes to the ashram or to like learn how to meditate and she can't do it. And the one guy in there says to her, like, you should be able to pick out your thoughts. Like you pick out your clothes every day. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking how impossible that seemed when I watched that movie. And now I'm actually able to do that. And it is so freeing. I feel like I have so much more control. That's amazing because you're a young and I can see, you know, and, and I feel that way about my kids too, because I feel like they're so much farther ahead of the game than I was. And I just think the the longer you can sustain a practice, you'll just be so mm -hmm. grateful. 
So true. It's practice. So true. It's all a practice, whether you're talking about how we parent our kids or how we're figuring out our own stuff or, you know, it's a practice. Mm-hmm. It's an ongoing practice. Absolutely. A lifelong journey mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing happens overnight. You know, Tuni, you are an amazing writer and you released a deeply personal memoir called Underwater Daughter. And I have so many questions for you about this book, but before we dive in, I would love if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Well, to pick up on something you mentioned earlier, because I know you are a trauma survivor and my heart is right there next to yours. This wasn't like something, as you say, like to to take on the task of like writing about it seems monumental, right? And there was never a time where I considered doing that until it it was almost like life circumstances pushed pushed me into it. And it has been an incredible unburdening. Um, so I totally encourage you to go down that road. And if you Thank ever you. need a, a hand to hold or whatever, oh. I'm here for you. I'm here for it. I just want you to tell everyone who's listening um, about yourself and your background and, you know, up until this point where you wanted to write this book and give us a little bit of an idea of who you are. Well, I was a dancer, right? All my life, I started dancing extremely young and I got my first professional gig while I was still in high school. So I was in a company then and just kind of segued into a career that totally was also the way I coped with some of the childhood trauma. Right. And, um, so it was a, it was a love hate relationship in the sense that it was a passion and I was able to fully express my inner dialogue through my performance, through my time, whether it was training in a studio or performing on a stage, but that but the the double-edged sword aspect of that was that I remained quiet and I and all of the sort of challenges and sufferings that I pulled into myself never um, were addressed. So dance just kind of kept me safe and kept me in survivor mode. You know, I would say that that two thirds of my life I felt like I was just surviving. And I was keeping things very quiet and safe so that I didn't have to really be just totally vulnerable, totally out there with my broken heart. Right. And mm-hmm. of course, now what I've learned by taking the step of writing it all down and now my story is out there, it's coming out of my mouth. Right. I'm learning every day that that kind of vulnerability brings me closer to people. Um, you know, becomes a connection to other survivors and, you know, hopefully praying, crossing fingers that, you know, my story is possibly, you know, a, a space for to hold someone else's story that they someone else will find their courage there. So it's that's the story. That's it. Yeah. You know, I can so relate to that. It sounds to me too, that you were silent for so many years and those, those coping mechanisms of staying silent and throwing yourself into this art that you were so passionate about was protecting yourself, which was 
it served its purpose at the time. It did what it needed to do, but it came to a point in your life where you had you decided that you didn't need those anymore. You were ready to talk. And I know from my own experience how freeing it is. Scary. I imagine it was terrifying for you to put it into print. And I'm so curious, once you started the process of writing, what did that feel like? Were you scared? Was it, was it therapeutic? Was it freeing? What was that process like for you? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, there, it wasn't necessarily like a decision in the sense, oh, I'm going to do this now. You know, I had this bike accident in my, yeah, I was 55. And because of my lifelong journey of being dancer slash mover slash identifying everything and who I was with movement, the Mm -hmm. accident took all of that off the table. And, you know, there was multiple surgeries and narcotics and just this complete shape shifting of my entire life where I got to the point, I, I just spiraled out like depression and, and chaos in my head. And I think I'm going to give up kind of thing. And because most of my injuries were my upper body, um, you know, infused with fear, I turned to writing for the first time in my life, not because I wanted to publish my story, but I needed some way of expressing myself. I still hadn't found my voice. And so the writing just poured out and what poured out you know, intuitively and necessarily was all of this childhood trauma that I had been stuffing away my entire life. And it was like knocking on the door saying, get me out, get me out. And Mm -hmm. so what ended up happening too was this whole episode bumped up against COVID. And so suddenly, you know, I'm still housebound recovering and I'm writing and you know, someone sees my, you know, I start to sort of float my writing here and there on Facebook or something. And someone's like, oh, you should join a writing circle. And it was when I started to take that step. And because of COVID, everything's on Zoom. And the next thing I know, other first, for the first time, other eyeballs are really on my writing and they're very supportive and encouraging and saying, move it forward, move it forward. And that's eventually what ended up happening. That's amazing. And you know, it's so interesting I've talked to so many people who, you know, when you have something that you're so passionate about, and then there's this life altering event where it's taken away from you, Mm. um, you really believe that it's the worst thing that can happen to you. And so often, whether you see it six months down the road or a year or five years down the road, you look back and you realize that that pivotal moment in your life really led you to what was next and what you were supposed to do. A hundred percent full stop spot on. And I, re- I remember too, even in the moment, like I'm, it, so it was a bike accident, right? Total blindside. I, you know, I'm, I'm just like a mangled mess on asphalt coming in and out of consciousness. And I remember at one point, just this voice in my ear, just almost like a guardian angel, like just stay still and we're going to take care of you. And it, it was like, you know, it was really like something that I'd never heard. Like I'm going to mm-hmm. take care of you, you know? And, and it, I, to this day, I just have this vision. Like, I, I don't know who it was. I don't know if I made it up, but it's, you know, I just constantly refer to it as this pivotal moment for me. And it was, that is so beautiful. I love stories like that. And it's just so incredible what it did for you. And, you know, your personal story in the book, um, it leads into the details of what had happened to you. And I, I would love if you could share the premise of Underwater Daughter and what really inspired you to write this memoir. 
Well, the premise really was finding a healing place, right? And over the years, you know, with all the different life hacks I employed, you know, what ended up happening was I became my mom's caretaker um, while I was writing this book. And so while all of this stuff is pouring out, I'm also in a position to become my mother's mother. Mm-hmm. And while I had reached a point where I could I could forgive my father, like, you know, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I think reconciling someone's behavior, like someone is still accountable, but you know, if if you're able to forgive, you release the burden within yourself. And those last two years of my mom's life. I reached that point with her. It took me much longer to get that um, kind of peace with her. And really, that was the journey I was on from the minute I started to write. I just wanted to find a larger perspective of trauma. Like, I mean, there, yes, there are so many different levels of of trauma someone can experience, whether it's a, you know, whether they suffer or they bury it or whatever, but there's always a deeper, more like backward generational kind of story to all of this. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's the place I wanted to get to where I could sort of open it up, let all the walls come down from every direction and find a place of forgiveness and for healing. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that is key in my own journey as well is reminding myself that I don't have to stay in pain to hold somebody accountable, Mm -hmm. that I can actually let that, let it go. And I'm not giving them a free pass. I'm actually giving myself permission to live my life. That's the way I want to. And, you know, hearing you say that it's, it's clearly what you did as well. And I just really want to drive home with everyone who's listening, how important that is in the healing process to just let your ego go, let all of the pain go. And it's giving yourself permission to live the life you want to live. You know what? It's also kind of a privilege. And I, and I, I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, entitlement as much as it takes a certain amount of grace, I think, and openness to get to that point. Mm -hmm. I know that there's so many young people that are, that just stay in situations that don't allow the air to come in. Right. And, you know, that's, it's, it's not as though they can't heal or they don't wish to heal, but sometimes it's just that much harder And somehow we just have to create, you know, kind of this society or, you know, somehow we need to create more opportunities to connect to those that that need a mentor or a listener Mm -hmm. or an arm around their shoulders or whatever. Like, it's just the number of stories out there. It's just breathtaking. It's mind boggling. Right. So. The more that it you really and is. I can be out there as as like proponents of service and listening and love, like the the better. Like hopefully it has that more long lasting trickle effect. 
Absolutely. And listening to you talk about it, it's clear how much work you've done. And this is, these are the conversations that I strive to have. These are the conversations that fuel my soul, that excite me to share with my community. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of paint a picture of why you are the way you are today. I would love if you could tell everybody, you know, what your home life was like growing up. You know, my home life was really beautiful. Like I came from a a, a probably upper middle class family, very well educated, very cultural. My father was a brilliant pianist and he was a physician and my mother was, you know, a dancer (laughs) and (laughs) an art lover. And just, it was a, a beautiful surroundings. And I, and part of me really feels as though that is partly how I held on to my own inner spirit and my own sort of warrior self because I was surrounded by such grace and beauty, right? I -hmm. knew that that was out there. And that was something that I really wanted to hold on to, like, and not let go. So, you know, like all the other coping things was just my way of just holding on tight to the good stuff, right? So... It you know the thing about it is, it trauma is going to happen everywhere, and like I said, you know the fact that that I had enough sort of dangling in front of me as as sort of like the light at the end of the tunnel, it was enough to to sort of keep me going. So I I didn't give up. Yeah, that's and go down a dark path, right? Yeah, I mean that's that's kind of the fork in the road, right? Like anyone that's been through something like this knows how easy it is to give up. Mm -hmm. That's just a moment's notice. Yeah. A lot of people who are listening and a big part of my community is fellow trauma survivors and, you know, people who are trying to support someone in their life that has been through something really traumatic. And I want to, I want to touch on the abuse that you, you incur, you endured um, a little bit and how you navigated it through the years, you know, and was there part of you that knew it wasn't right? Were you confused by it? Yeah. I'd love for you to share with us, you know, your insight on this. Yeah. I mean, certainly when I was younger, when I was younger, I normalized it. I didn't, I didn't question it. I, I could sense sort of negativity and, and distaste from my mom. Right. Um, but it just wasn't a, a slam dunk as far as how to sort of translate it. Because when you're young, you're just essentially normalizing everything, Yeah, you know? Um, and like I said, the dance, definitely became my crutch, my passion and my crutch. You know, all the different kind of dysfunctional behaviors then served their purpose, kept me going forward slower, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's amazing how we can convince ourselves. I mean, back to meditation, all the thoughts, right? All the ways that we translate for ourselves, our inner dialogues, how we're, how we're surviving, how we're moving forward all this destructive behavior, I could, I could tell myself, Hey, I'm, I'm moving forward. I'm not giving up. And that was enough at the time, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that eventually, I think what anyone, you know, surviving really significant childhood trauma, I think you get to a point where you just 
tire of of all of the quiet, all of the things you're burying inside. Yeah. One thing I wanted to touch on that is really difficult is a lot of times when when people are being sexually abused, you know, by a family member, it's you get that escape where you can go home to your safe place. And the fact that you had to endure that from your father and then live under the same roof, what, what was that like for you constantly living in fear? I'm, I'm sure that that is an experience for a lot of, a lot of people that have had similar situations, but I did not live in fear necessarily because I was so young. I, I, I almost became, you know, part of the problem. I didn't understand that the behavior was inappropriate, not to the extent that I could do, that I could say to myself, hey, this has got to stop, right? Like that just never crossed my mind. And I also knew because my mom was completely aware of what was going on and chose to just not intervene or protect me. And I, and I had the sense of how angry she was and her inability to sort of speak up. And so it, it honestly became almost like a power play in a way. Like I had this leverage over my mom and I knew it. Mm-hmm. It sounds horrible, honestly, when I, when I talk about it, but um, you know, then, but the behavior from my dad really stopped on a dime when I turned like 11 years old. And at that point, you know, I was really like, how, how can you, how can this end? Like, I didn't understand that. Yeah. And, and I kind of blamed my mother. I thought, oh, you've done this. You've taken, you've taken my specialness away. And so then it just became about not fear at all, but just hating my mom. Like I, I went through years. I mean, and I imagine too, um, Tuni, you know, as this is happening to you from a, such a young age, a part of the reason you were so angry when it, when it went away was because it was the only way your father had shown you love oh. and affection. That was all you knew. Yep, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, again, when in the adult lens, that perspective, when you're looking back, like my father was enigmatic. He was brilliant in so many ways and he was incapable of emotional connection or parenting at all. Like he was a very, very absent father minus this, you know, very Mm -hmm. specific time period and and his need like many things informed that physical need that he had. Right. And that's part of the story too. So. Yeah. And, you know, before, you know, first of all, I am so sorry that this happened to you and it's just, it it never should have happened. But when I think about the level of dysfunction that both your parents were creating in your life, I can't help but wonder how that affected your relationships, your intimate relationships later in life and what that looked like for you. Still struggling sister. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, like I said, it's a, it's a lifelong practice. And I think that what, by, by writing this memoir, I am so much more keenly aware of how my past has really and continues to influence who I am in relationship to others. And it's uh, startling in a lot of ways because, you know, I, I, I sort of felt, oh, I've, I've grown, I've, I've achieved so much more insight and all of that. But 
there's just certain roadblocks that I continue to face and you know, it's it's a practice, like I say, and I know I'm going in the right direction. I know I'm I'm really searching and wanting to not have the answers or create the answers. Like I'm just wanting to keep pushing forward and join, you know, with curiosity, other people's truths and all of that stuff. So as you're talking, I keep thinking about something that was really pivotal for me in my healing journey. And it was understanding how trauma showed up in my body and why I was reacting the way I was to certain things and why my body was feeling the way it was and why certain things were triggering me. And in understanding trauma and understanding what it did to me physically, mentally, and emotionally, I didn't feel so for lack of a better word, crazy. I didn't feel so insane. And I'm curious if, if you educated yourself on trauma and what it, what it does to you in all those areas. Yeah. I've, I've read so many books. I mean, Mm -hmm. one of the key books I read was body keeps the score. And that's a very, that's a uh, still on the bestseller list. I think it's been for mm-hmm. for a long time. Um, I went to workshops. I've done therapy. I'm still in therapy, <laughs> you know. And and but to be quite honest, and this is another reason why I would encourage you to write. The writing has been incredible as far as untangling a lot of the inner dialogue mm-hmm. and making you know different sense of things. So that that's been awesome. The writing, yeah. I I love that you're doing that. And it is definitely something I've always thought about. There's something about putting your thoughts and your story into words and print that, and reading it back to yourself that it's like journaling, right? It's like what I do with journaling. And I look back at how far I've come and it's, it's powerful to do that. And, you know, as a mother, um, I'm so curious to know how this affected you as you started having children and the fears you had around your own children going through similar experiences that you went through. Yeah. It it doesn't, um, I don't know if it magnifies those fears. Maybe it does. I can, you know, you can only speak to your own experiences. Um, but those conversations were had as early as possible, you know, safety and all of that. And it, it really doesn't matter how in front of the curve you think you are, mm-hmm. there's no controlling what, you know, every moment of your children's lives. And I can only say that, you know, my kids have all experienced really, you know, somewhat traumatic things, maybe not, you know, certainly not the same as their mom, but it's, there's just a lot of really not well-behaved people out there. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's really challenging, but I will say that having kids for me was just miracle, right? Like just to have that, that sort of pure unconditional love that I really never had experienced as a young girl. So, you know, the healthy love, right? The, the health that you, the love that you could rely on. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, I would love to know what was the turning point for you that inspired you to make changes and and start the healing process? Probably having children was the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. Having my first kid. Cuz all of a sudden, you know, you you definitely do this 360 in your in your head, especially the mom, right? I mean, there's nothing like the mother-child relationship that bond, hopefully. And um Yeah. You know, and 
all of a sudden having this full responsibility of a life, I took so profoundly. It, it just, it was just a complete game changer. And, you know, I knew I wanted to be everything possible. I wanted to walk the talk as best as I could for my kids. Mm -hmm. I relate to that so much. And, you know, something that keeps coming up that I can't let go of from the beginning of our conversation was that in the end, you know, you had to be the parent to your mother and you had to look after her and to find the strength to be able to do that, you know, and not be angry anymore. I I can't help but wonder how you did it, what that did to you. You know, I imagine it took a lot of therapy, a lot of soul searching, meditation. Walk us through what that was like for you. Mm, I was still hungry for her. I all, you know, all that hate, all those years of of, you know, in the back of my mind thinking, how could you do this? How could you allow mm-hmm. this to happen? How could you not step in? I was so resentful. And I, but, you know, on the other side of that coin was that little girl never had that mama. I still just, I craved it so, so profoundly. And, and that craving actually sort of kept alive the hope and a kind of an understanding that that's instinctual. That's, that's just natural to want that from your mother, right? And so I just harbored it for so long that when, you know, it became obvious she needed someone to care for her. She was sort of living on her own, far away. No one's really checking in on her. And I'm like, someone's got to be here for this woman. And once I told her, you know, she was literally, you know, eight blocks away from me. I just knew it was the right thing. I knew that this was my uh, my chance to change the story for us both. Wow. <laughs> um, I can't even tell you what that just did to me, like full body chills. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I have experienced a similar thing with my own mother. Mm-hmm. And you're, what you're saying rings so true to me that you still have that yearning to be loved by your mother. And as angry as I am and as hurt as I am and as toxic and bad as I know she is, that little girl inside of me still desperately wants to be loved by my mother. And, you know, I find myself in moments in my life today where I think, and I say to my husband, I just wish I could call my mom. Mm -hmm. I just wish my mom could be proud of me, you know, and that doesn't go away. And I love that you said that because I know that there's so many people who are listening who really struggle with two things being true at the same time. Mm -hmm. You can be so angry and so hurt and know that it's wrong, but also really mourn the loss of that and want it, right? Yeah. And I mean, and, you know, here you are too. And it just makes my heart break listening to you as well. And, you know, now you're a mom and you see how dependent they are on you, right? You know, you know it now at the, from the different side of it and God, you would never want to withhold that. Right. So it's just, so there's something about I, I, I've been, you know, I still write, I write every day. I have a couple different projects and, you know, the whole idea of how profound the mother-child bond is, I could just write and write and write about it. I just think mm-hmm. it's everything. I really do. 
I really do too. And you know, it shapes you for the rest of your life. And I think, you know, um, my best friend is a, is a clinical psychologist and she comes on this podcast every month and we do an episode together. Mm -hmm. And one thing we just recently talked about was how nobody prepares these mothers when they're leaving the hospital for the impact that they're going to have on their child emotionally and mentally and developmentally based on how much affection they give them. Mm -hmm. And it really is true that, you know, children can be traumatized even from just lack of connection, Mm -hmm. lack of physical touch, lack of love. And for someone like you and myself, who not only didn't have that, but also had this big gaping wound and distance between our mothers and this hurt, you know, it's something that follows you forever. And it is a lifelong journey to heal from it and healing that inner child. And I I'm curious if you have done inner child work and how, if you have, how you found that process. I mean, I'm not sure if I'm familiar with specifically like stated inner child work. I've certainly crossed that, the, that, um, topic in therapy sessions. And I feel like, especially when I first started to write and, and I also, and maybe, maybe throughout, maybe still, I feel like that is largely a present perspective at all times that there's this young child seeing the world and and it's like through big beautiful innocent eyes and i want to stay there and i and now you you know you sort of know you know five decades later like oh there's all these other things but that that perfect beautiful innocent perspective is something i think i've always really wanted to like hold on to Mm-hmm. It's so pure and it's so innocent and beautiful. And I, I do agree with you. And, you know, I've done a lot of inner child work and just going back to giving myself what I needed then and that hug, mm-hmm. and you know, I'm proud of you and those things. It, it's really pivotal. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I find so fascinating is the title of your memoir. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it can mean something to, to so many. And when I saw it, I thought about what it meant to me, but I would love to know what made you want to give it that name? What does underwater daughter mean to you? Oh, I want to hear what you wanted it to mean. Uh, you know, for me, it meant that with my own relationship with my mother, mm-hmm. I felt silenced and stifled and like nothing about me mattered. And I was constantly trying to get to the surface and catch my breath and be heard and not feel like I was drowning in the pain. Yeah, you nailed it. (laughs) That's what it meant to me. I mean, that is definitely, I mean, if you listen to me, someone asking me this question in a different interview, you you practically stole my answer. However, (laughs) there's some other parts. And one is, so when I first, when I first submitted my manuscript, it was titled, um, the beauty within, because when you were asking me earlier about the theme, like that was really the intention was to find the beauty. Right. Mm -hmm. But this is very common. I learned that a lot of titles going in, don't stick publishers say, Oh no, whatever. And so what my publisher had done was given me about 150 words or so just from what she picked up from reading the book. And they had little keywords. And she said, go back and see if you can come up with something. And those two words, once I put them together, they stuck. And initially, it was just the rhythm of it. You know, I thought it was so poetic. And there is a ton of water symbols and metaphor in in the prose of the book. And so I thought, well, that 
really works. And then just mm-hmm. like you said, I mean, the more I sort of tried to extract what I thought could come out of that title, I thought this is really encapsulating all of it. That's beautiful. Yeah. And you know, something that keeps coming to mind as you're talking about it is just, you know, you matter, your feelings matter, which is so important to remember, right? You know, I'm making my way through your book right now and it's so beautifully written and your poetic is a really great way to um, describe it. You're very poetic in your writing. And I would love to know what you would like readers to walk away with from this book. Mm, Hope and grace, like you know, be kind to yourself and find someone who will listen, someone who says yes to everything you're saying when you need that to happen. I think that it's, I think that's a a lot of how we're challenged is, is, you know, everyone kind of needs to be seen and heard and you don't always have that opportunity. And so, I think those of us that are even more keenly aware that that's so necessary, we need to put ourselves in positions to seek seek out those that need it, right? Or to do the things like you're doing by having this podcast, right? Or hopefully what I've done by writing this book, it's just more of that kind of energy going out and sort of becoming the radar that other people that are needing that kind of support can can see that, can, can latch onto it. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. And, you know, I truly believe that sometimes we're meant to go through things that we survive and then we can pass on how we survived it. And I think that when I think about what you went through and what I've been through, there's no way I'm willing to accept that we went through these things for just for the sake of going through them. There has to be more, right? And I really love what you're doing and your writing. And I think that this is so important for the world to to hear. And to your point too, and I'm sure this will resonate. It's like you spend those years, decades, keeping quiet, keeping silent because of the fear, because of the shame, all of those things. And then once you finally understand for whatever reason it, you can't be silent anymore. And then you realize, oh, I'm actually helping other people. I'm, I'm going to help someone else. Yes. That service, right? Mm-hmm. It really drives me is the act of service. Yeah. It just, it feels so good. It gives you purpose. And, you know, like I said, we didn't go through these things for just the sake of going through them. I, I refuse to accept that. Yep. Yep. I'm with you. You know, one thing I love to end every episode with, and I'm so curious to hear what you say is what is one piece of advice or something that you would share with your younger self with young Toonie? What would you say after all of this healing and writing this book? Yeah, that's a tough one. But to my younger self, I would say you're okay. Just you're okay. You're not you're not a bad person. You're okay. That's beautiful. I love that. Mm -hmm. You know, Tumi, thank you so much for giving me your time today. And, um, we'll link your book in the show notes. I hope everyone goes out and gets a copy. It is such a beautifully written poetic story. And the more we share our stories, the more the shame fades. And I'm just so grateful to you for that. So thank you so much. I totally agree. And thank you for having me on. It was my honor to be here and I can't wait to be a beta reader for your book. 
Oh, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. Thank you. You as well. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that today's episode provided insight, inspiration, and comfort to anyone who is dealing with the effects of trauma. Remember, you are not defined by your scars and you are not alone in your healing journey. If you enjoyed listening, please make sure to rate, review, and share this episode with a friend who could benefit from listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.